Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijar Nathan, and today's special guest is my co-host, Bruce Whitaker. Welcome, Bruce. Good morning. Good to be here. How are you, Vijay? Good. Thanks. Thanks. So I know, uh, the, as the listeners know, you've been co-hosting for about a month now, uh, two months now, I think, has it already been since the beginning of COVID. So oh, since around the beginning of COVID. So uh, it's already been since April 27th. Um, so it's already been like about a month and a half or so. Um, can't believe it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Time flies. Time flies. And then, um, so why don't we, why don't we give us a little bit of a uh, background so we'll get a chance to dive a little deeper with you and your life and your work and life's work. So why don't you start off just by telling us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about where you're coming from and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, DJ. Well, um, I uh, have joined you after retiring from uh, a job that I loved for almost 20 years. I was the executive director of a group called Theater Forward, which was a nonprofit network of major regional theaters located in major cities across the country. The theaters like the Guthrie in Minneapolis, the Old Globe in San Diego. And we worked with corporations to uh, particularly focus on funding their education and their equity, diversity, and inclusion efforts, which are very much in the news and in the movement right now. Prior to that, I was managing director of Signature Theater here in New York, which was founded by James Houghton. And as many listeners probably know, focuses very much on the careers of playwrights. At the time I was there, it was still uh, very well known for doing one playwright's work all season long, and it was focusing on distinguished playwrights. So John Guare, Edward Albee, Arthur Miller, and so forth. Um, I, before that, I was at the Manhattan Theater Club as a literary manager and dramaturg for several years. And uh, that was following a transition I did uh, from the accounting and bureaucracy world. I was with the World Food Program and a publishing company, um, has, having started life as a CPA. So I'm one of the only CPA MFAs that anyone will ever meet. And I grew up in Nebraska and moved to New York after college. So that's kind of uh, where I come from right now. I'm spending my time a lot uh, writing and uh some of my poems have been published, and I'm working on an, uh, a chapbook uh, that will uh, go out for uh, hopefully publication sometime in the next year or so. Excellent, excellent. And as far as um, theater productions go, did you ever do a production of Macbeth, or did you ever have any kind of major production that had its own little kind of stories around it? Or I know Macbeth <laughs> is famous for being a cursed production. They uh, have certain, like, etiquette um, when they do a production of Macbeth, you know, they say, call it the Scottish play. Yeah, you never say the yeah. word Macbeth yeah. in the theater. Um, yeah. No, no. Well, certainly when I was producing theater, we had shows that were a complete disaster. You know, oh. every, every theater that produces multiple shows a year has a few come on that you're sort of like, whoa, we will not survive this. And um one year we had a, a very, very poor, one of the theaters I was working at, we had a season of extremely poor ticket sales. Um, we sold in three shows about as many tickets as, as we usually, as we did in other seasons for, the, for one show, for example. So, and the, the play was really, really challenging. And um, during the dress rehearsal, during the, the, just before the dress rehearsal, 
they change the entire scene order very abruptly. And um, we just, we weren't sure we were gonna open the show to the press and all these kinds of things, but it turned out to be one of the best, certainly the best grossing show of that season of, of that writer. And it turned out to be a really, really beautiful play. And it taught me as if I didn't know already that the backstage situation can have very little connection to what's going on in the audience and on stage. Um, it's all its own drama. It's, all, it's a parallel drama sort of. Um, so it's, uh, but it, you know, it's like any other human endeavor, whatever can go wrong might well go wrong in the course of a show. And uh, you never know what's going to suddenly take off. You can't even tell really from reading scripts um, how a show will, will turn out. It's extremely hard. And I've seen uh, Broadway shows come in with all the right ingredients, the right director, the right actors, the right, you know, great story, a legendary property and never take on with audiences. So it's, yeah. that's the racehorse we call it, you know, picking a winner is impossible. Nobody knows. And uh, the world is full of surprises. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting because like I just started reading station 11, which I don't know if you're familiar with that work, but it's no. about a post pandemic world where a Shakespeare company, a, a group of actors, basically, and musicians uh, travel this post-pandemic landscape uh, and put on productions of, of Shakespeare. So, or like various um, theater um, shows, but specifically they're focused on Shakespeare. So I just started reading it about 50 or 60 pages into it. And uh, I think it does comment a lot about the place of arts, the arts, in society um they use the quote from voyager allegedly um survival is insufficient so talking mm. about the role of arts and how important arts are really the arts is in uh society and how you know people sometimes think of like performances as being somewhat like i don't know frivolous or like you know but it's so essential you know and i think that that's something we have to remember that expression and artistic expression so what has been your what do you think about that? And think about like, you know, when when funding and, and especially with funding, when they, they try to prioritize, you know, uh, what they consider essential, you know, or vital or, or you know, and what does that mean? And what is what is essential? Yeah. What is vital? Yeah. Well, it's a um, it's a very complicated argument because on one level, you know, on the um, who is who is the Shakespeare of today? How do we remember a certain period? The arts are how you often remember that period. Mm. Um, and so we have the Renaissance, which was basically an artistic and intellectual revolution. Um, you have the Jazz Age, of course, which uh, gave its name to that. And of course, rock and roll and all those things have, have defined the eras in which they developed. Um, so there's a there's that sort of who are we identifier that comes through the arts and not so much through other things, but then you have the um, that's the intrinsic argument, if you will, the way fundraisers talk about it. But then you have the extrinsic arguments, what the arts do in addition to that. And there are several arguments that uh, are made, and one of them is, of course, economic. We know that. There are bigger audiences for theater, for even off-Broadway theater, which is a big category of theater in New York, but there are bigger audiences for that than there are for our sports teams. 
Um, we know that the uh, Broadway community drives billions of dollars of economic development here in New York City. And I know the, the cities around the country, theaters anchor downtown districts, they anchor arts districts, uh, the, the combination of museum, symphony, theater, and so on are extremely economically important. Um, but then what we found when I was at Theater Forward was that theater can also play unexpected roles in quality of life and life direction when it's applied in a very um, generous and intensive way outside the actual building of theater. So there were several programs we funded uh, in Dallas for the Dallas Theater Center, with the Old Globe in San Diego, with Seattle Rep and, and uh, the Guthrie in Minneapolis that brought theater out to communities, engaged community partners, Native Americans, the elderly, African-American seniors, uh, Latinx seniors, and uh, brought theater to libraries, community centers, engaged them in laboratories where they were acting, uh, put on shows where they performed in a large scale Shakespeare production, for example. And what was found was that Many people who may have been older took better care of themselves in the course of their theater experience, their health improved. Uh, one of the partners in Seattle was a women's shelter and a lot of uh, the people who engaged in theater there uh, regained a sense of confidence and agency about themselves and were able to, by participating in theater, take bigger strides in overcoming the challenges they were facing. And I think those are, kind of isolated and laboratory examples of what generally happens when you have a healthy cultural life personally. You know, the, uh, we did a study of corporate executives and how they attributed their success to the arts, either as exposure when they were younger or during their lives. And overwhelmingly, they attribute their success in large measure to their experience in the arts as either arts makers or participants or as audience members. Uh, it, it, it appeals to those higher level, what we really think of as our great human qualities, our compassion, our wisdom, all of those high functioning qualities are developed in the course of the arts. And uh, so that's, there, there are many, many ways to look at that. And uh, so as we look at what a post pandemic world looks like and mm -hmm. Cities like New York have to figure out where the arts fit into their, uh, into their what they can do with very limited budget funding. Um, cut them at your peril because you will destroy far more than simply a budget category if you don't keep the arts going in your city. Yeah, exactly. I don't want this um, post-pandemic world to be an excuse to cut the arts. I think that's you know, very, very vital to our society, to our livelihood, and whether or not, you know, how, what the face of live performances are going to look like is the question, really. And how, Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's, a, of course, the huge challenge at the moment is when will it be safe to sit, as someone said, shoulder to shoulder. <laughs> mm. um, and the performing arts are extremely challenged in that experience. Um, they are doing, uh, theaters are doing a phenomenal job right now, streaming, programming, holding uh, public fora. Um, the Old Globe is, uh, Barry Edelstein there is doing this wonderful series of lectures on the Shakespearean sonnets. Uh, Shakespeare is very important to that theater and that audience. So they're doing programming to keep uh, 
their audiences engaged and, and to, to support their communities in this period of lockdown. Um, there are some of their programs, like their playwriting program for the community has been greatly expanded by access to online inter interaction. So, um, but financially it's an utter and complete disaster. Uh, they're very highly dependent on ticket revenue um, and this programming will not replace that. So um, one of the questions that even the combination of COVID and Black Lives Matter has created, as many people know, um, the very, very important campaign, I See You, which has been uh, addressed to the theater world by several hundred African-American and people of color, artists, leaders, uh, and calling upon Broadway and institutional theater to radically change and finally address its implicit biases. Um, you know, there, there's been a kind of a pattern for many, many years of, oh, this is the African-American slot, the, the kind of tokenism of in February, we will do our African-American play and then we will move on. Um, and the theaters we worked with were really trying to break that mold through the kinds of programs we supported but the challenge remains how well the institution itself serves those communities and those people in the sense of are African-American employees, people of color truly welcome in a theater or are they being hired as a, um, as a, a bit of uh, whitewashing, if you will, of, oh, we have a uh, production manager who's African-American or we have a literary manager who's African-American um, and so therefore we are going to, we are a, a legitimately equitable theater. Yeah, as a way um, to justify statistics by just saying, oh, we have a few that we put in and that, that doesn't, that excuses whatever biases we have in general, whatever. Yeah, yeah. and it's not that the staffs are, are necessarily more biased than anyone else, but the challenges can come in from the staff, but also from boards, from supporters, from audience members, you know, even even in New York, there there's some really alarming stories about how African Americans are treated in audiences by white audiences. Mm. Um, any kind of excessive response to the show, or uh, any kind of slight behavior outside some perceived norm, gets tromped on by audience members who don't, you know, they're sort of hyper alert to these. African-American individuals and so um, but yeah, there was a, a story there was a story about the wine train that goes through California and uh, allegedly um, they kind of targeted some African-American women who had come on the wine train and were laughing too loudly allegedly yeah. and yeah. Uh, that resulted in like a million dollar lawsuit where they each won. They ultimately, I think, justifiably, they won that lawsuit because it was completely just a targeting, targeting yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. So these are the kinds of, of barriers that the uh, ICU movement is talking about. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that their criticism is extremely sharp and um, and for the field as a whole, I think, is is very appropriate. And they're, they're moving on it at a time when theaters, since they're not producing, the senior leadership of these theaters actually, I think, has an opportunity to start to figure out how to address some of these issues. And because we all know the, the general world we had before, as, as a friend of mine said, something happened. 
um, was far from perfect. And those imperfections have now become um, intolerable. And so we want a different world when we do come back. And we have an opportunity to change it. Um, so I think that, that makes it a very rich time behind the scenes to do the kind of work, to make the kind of changes that will, um, that will make the world more equitable across the board in the arts, uh, in, in, in theater, what we're talking about. But other, other arts institutions also have these issues, you know, galleries, museums, um, performing, other performing arts uh, genres as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that when we have the canon, we have established artists, uh, you know, kind of the, with the background, these kinds of artists should be advocating for and also the establishment. And we should all as viewers and listeners and um, and museum goers should be advocating for, um, you know, together we should be having one voice that we want to continue to hear from more people. And we want to hear it not just always being like, um, you know, taught the same uh, literature or the same voices. We want to diversify that voices and hear it from different perspectives because I think as times change, you know, the terrain is changing and we have so much more uh, people who are on the ground and, and this, in the streets who are, um, you know, shaping this world. And as the world changes, we want to continue to keep a uh, interpretation on that is that kind of what you think the objective is or well or? yeah i mean that's on the programming side but the programming side is not so much the problem there have been some issues around around that um yeah. but really it's about the power over the institution it's about power more than programming oh. who is who is designing a season who is speaking for the season Mm. Who is funding the season and who benefits from the season? You know, whenever a majority white theater produces an artist of color, they are taking an artist from a theater of color. Oh. And theaters of color uh, are drastically underfunded. Um, and many of them, like Penumbra in Minneapolis, are historic and have been key to the development of very extraordinary careers. Um, and continue to do major important work, but they're in competition with theaters across the country who will pick up a, a successful writer, successful actor, and move on with it. And so how, is, how do you equitably uh, have a, a theater system where uh, the resources are, are fairly distributed and the jobs are distributed. People are happy in their jobs. They're supported in their jobs. They're not undergoing constant microaggression whenever they face that colleague down the hall or an audience go in front of an audience or they're confused for servers at events and you know all kinds of uh, you know, things that are happening in our current environment, not just in theater, this happens everywhere. Um, there have been writers uh, uh, have talked a lot about going to uh, uh, other kinds of genre galas uh, and, and being asked for drinks by white patrons and things. So it's, uh, it's part of the whole systemic problem in our country. Uh, police violence is kind of the apex problem. It's by far the most dangerous, mm. but it filters up from all of this uh, kind of uh, power, power struggle going on on a daily basis in our culture. Yeah, it seems like the way um, we all within our structures socialize the way we interact with people 
And we have to be very conscious of the fact that, um, you know, for people uh, in our circles, even, even bring it down to the ground level, it's like we're, we have these biases, we have the prejudices, we have these uh, preconceived notions about people and dismantling those and interrogating those seems to be the basic foundation upon which all this is built. Because um, just like when, uh, you know, when some of these politicians like Mike Pence and all that came out with that they don't have lunch with women, uh, you know, without, you know, alone <laughs> or something like that. So yeah. this, this is just a way in which sexism, misogyny, you know, presents itself because even though it seems like, oh, he's, you know, I don't know why anyone would think, um, you know, the way that Mike Pence intended it because it seems so absurd. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't give that credence, but I guess he's saying something about fidelity. He's making a comment on fidelity, but uh, it's ridiculous because, you know, I think that what we have here is, um, you know, limiting opportunities for women to socialize and to oh, not so, not socialize, but to move in within circles and have series of influence, just like, you know, uh, you know, when you have positions of power, they're able to influence each other, influence the society. And that comes from having that, you know, interaction, you know? Yeah, I, you know, it, I, I don't want to go speak too much to that because I really That's don't have a specific the, thing, but the uh, general, thing that I do, yeah. I do know that was a concern for a lot of women as Me Too uh, justifiably returned, came, emerged that some of these um, procedures were actually going to cut women out of the conversation exactly, and exactly, yeah. cut them out of access yeah. to networking and tools and so forth. Yeah. And, um, you know, I hopefully um, there may have been some initial trepidation, but I would hope that um, we, we don't have time to cut people out. Yeah. You know, we don't, these, these, the women have, uh, you know, there's been a lot of interesting uh, observation about the, uh, the role of countries governed by women being so much more responsive to COVID, for example. Yeah. Uh, and we know that companies that are more equitable in the composition of their leadership and particularly their board function better and actually perform better economically. There's a whole sector of, of investing that focuses on companies that are progressive in all sorts of social ways. So um, that may be a phase of adjusting to this, that there are, there are guys that you really don't trust and so you don't want them hanging out with women alone. Uh, of course. Know, it's, yeah. it's a man's problem more than a woman's problem. It's like that toxic um, masculinity. Yeah, area. but I, I think this is just part of the whole the whole work we have to do and how yeah. uh, how we view everyone who is not exactly like ourselves and exactly like our historic sort of leadership model has to it has to undergo constant revision and constant reevaluation. Yeah, I think on the ground level, from you know uh, the idea of teaching men. The, you know, just the whole narrative about, you know, it being on like, for example, even in my own alma mater, uh, my high school, actually, this goes back to my high school, but in that level, they were talking about, I remember I read some stories um, about, you know, wh how women dress, how the kids, these are teenagers, or even younger, they were saying that they were restricting dress codes for the, this age, uh, because it was distracting. And this is kind of this is kind of like, one of the levels of um, this tiered uh, structure, which creates inequity for women because it's like 
it's encouraging the toxic masculinity masculinity that is pervasive you know and i think that's something that we need to address as a society and say listen it's not what women are wearing as much as you know how the the male gaze you know yeah yeah well that's um a very progressive friend of mine said a couple of years ago he said actually the 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 group that people are going to be focusing on pretty soon uh and and there's been a bit of a shift in this is uh is white boys um, yeah yeah who have uh all of these challenges in as you said toxic masculinity the the lack of suitable role models um the constant attack on uh on the behavior of the worst of them, the you know oh. the, the bad examples that they that the white boys can so often uh, exhibit, um, and in some cases even uh, uh, some sort of diminished opportunity because they are not benefiting from some of the attention. You know, generally girls are doing better in school; their college completion rates are better than boys. Mm. Um, one of the reasons that apparently uh, the, the uh, single mother rate is so high is uh, the, the number of women who have children on their own is so high is that the, uh, particularly for lower educated segments of our society, the number of viable men who, who can actually contribute to a marriage financially and so on is, is diminishing. Um, and this is fueling so much of the movements of white supremacy and so forth, this perception, and in some cases, this actuality of uh, what's happening with white boys. And um, we don't want to leave anyone behind. Um, you know, it's hard to say we're going to focus on this as a category, but, well, you know, there, there is some, you know, evidence of damage to this sector of our society, and we don't want that to continue. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think that uh, when I read about um, kind of the react, the, the sway back and forth in historical context of, um, you know, now there's been a lot of talk about, you know, uh, the response to or the perceived response to ethnic pride or, or people call it pride is that, oh, it's, it's a denigration of white uh, pride or something like that. But really, when we dismantle these things, you know, racial constructs are, are simply that, they're racial constructs. And I think that that is the way into um, understanding that, you know, cultural, culturally, we're all growing up in a kind of Eurocentric, Euro-predominant society, but uh, in the West, in the West, and uh, even in the East now, in, when you go back to the East, when I go to India, or when I go to uh, other countries, it's like they're being slowly infiltrated by Western Eurocentric ideas and you know, you have Burger Kings and, and, and McDonald's and all that kind of thing. And we have, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, but we have a lot of, in Bollywood, we have a lot of, you know, systemic, you know, kind of thought intrusion of the Eurocentric idea. And, um, you know, the point, my point in saying this is that what we need to do is get down to the nitty gritty, like the pointillism of it and understand the cultural um, identity is more important than supposedly than racial identity. So just understanding that, you know, where we're coming from, our own systems of thought, how we can accept and, and, and be, be kind of in dialogue with different cultures and different, uh, well, I mean, I guess what I'm also kind of trying to get out of beating around is that the idea of 
cultural appropriation or misappropriation and how that's such a problematic area of discussion um, and how when we kind of rigid and, and, the, and it opens the door for when we're rigid about, you know, I'm, I'm going to all different places. But well, also, I, I, yeah. I, I think it's really uh, what I think is happening uh, is the zero sum mentality is being weaponized. Every white people are being told, I, I you know, uh, we're, we're being told that they are taking our jobs, they yeah, yeah. are taking our opportunity. So they, whoever they are, women or African Americans or immigrants, they're being scapegoated. And the theory is that there's only so many jobs and so much opportunity. And if they get it, then we won't. And that is just, that is to me the the huge problem in our political culture right now. I mean, I uh, I hear uh, or see on Facebook friends are are arguing among themselves about whether who deserves uh, a particular program more. Is it veterans or uh, is it uh, you know single mothers? And they're they're pitting people keep pitting different groups against each other, saying that there's only a, this pie is only so big, whereas the other side, like for the example of boy, white boys we were talking about, if there's a program that is helping black boys or black girls finish college or finish school, that program ought to be made available to white boys. You know, if there's mm -hmm. a problem with white boy achievement, it, they, they need the same support that anybody else does. Let's lift everybody instead of pitting people against each other, yeah. fighting over the scraps at the very bottom of the heap. You know, that, that's where our culture so often goes, particularly our popular culture, our online culture. Mm. And it's beginning to happen. You know, the online culture, as we've seen, is becoming real culture. Yeah. So we have to not allow ourselves. And this is an intentional, systemic approach to make us think the pie is closed. There is only so much pie. And it's, it's enraging because... I watch, you know, I'm in my mid-60s and I've been very lucky. The period of economic growth and opportunity I had, nobody now in their right mind would think of going from an accounting career in their 30s and shifting over to theater all of a sudden. I mean, that's just, who can do that? Who could even think of doing that? Um, but I could. And, and there were rising tides in so many areas, particularly early in my working life, where equality was not such a huge problem in the economy. Later, it, things started getting locked down, getting rigid and all that. And it's tragic to see that. But in my lifetime, I've seen that the pie is not at all closed. The, not everybody may have a big enough spoon, but it, the pie will grow if you actually do expand the infrastructure of our country, our education, our qualification levels, our innovation, and our humanity. You know, there's so many jobs not being done. There's care not being taken that we are not allocating the resources to do. And um, so the, we have to throw out zero-sum thinking. That is the most dangerous and, and, and in some circles, it's being consciously used to divide us and weaken us. Yeah, I mean, now I'm seeing a lot of um, thoughts on budget and budgetary allotment. And, you know, because in New York City, at least, we're starting to come around to the budget year, fiscal year. And uh, the questions around, you know, already we've had trending towards defunding, you know, uh, libraries, defunding 
educational institutions, uh, defunding uh, schools, defunding, you know, like they're always cutting, cutting, cutting. The only thing that's being increased is the budgets of military and police, it seems like. And now there's a movement towards defunding the police, uh, which is, I think, um, you know, I mean, the knee jerk reaction is to say, oh, you know, how we can handle crime and all that kind of thing. But the, the point is, you know, if we were to invest in uh, social services, we invest in education, invest in these kinds of um, support systems that are preventative rather than, um, you know, uh, rather than the way that emergency, you know. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. It's much yeah. cheaper to have a social service in place to address a problem than it is to incarcerate and, uh, and, and you know, turn the police on, on that same problem. Exactly. New York City is facing, I, I don't think the, the mayor is even aware <laughs> of, just imagine the sudden disappearance of 60 million tourists, all their hotel tax, all their restaurant tax. Just imagine wealthy people who can afford to or who have places out of the city or moving out of the city permanently um, or working from home permanently outside the city so their taxes will not be available to the city. Just imagine this revenue crisis. And this is the moment of truth. What do we fund in a clinch like this? Yeah. And um, so are we going to eviscerate the kinds of things that will actually get us out of this problem? Or are we going to just fund the safe choices that will keep us locked down and, and drive us into some sort of spiral? Exactly. Um, and the theater, this is where interaction, several off-Broadway theaters have joined together to advocate for reallocation within the budget. And they're not necessarily saying put it in the arts. Um, and New York City has been very generous to its arts organizations. They, um, Department of Cultural Affairs budget is as large as the National Endowment for the Arts. So the city has a very distinguished and generous history of contributing to its arts. And that may not be possible for a couple of years at that level. Um, but certainly don't do that and increase funding for a police state. That's, mm. that's the kind of point people are saying is we'll, we'll take our cuts. The arts understand that there are a lot of issues that are uh, a little more urgent than they are at the moment, but don't don't be stupid about what you're paying attention to exactly. uh, and, and, and work for the future and not just this particular moment. Um, yeah, yeah, I wonder, I if, I wonder if I could, uh, I have a poem coming out this week right, um, great, great, yeah, from yeah. World Literature Today, and I wonder if you wouldn't mind if I read it, just sure, to give sure. you a feeling. Thank you. So this is called Sunday Morning, and it's going to be available online uh, tomorrow, actually. So um, one of the, my part of my background, I, I lived in Italy for three years, and I go back every once, I worked for the United Nations there. And um, this uh, came to me uh, in January, actually. And at the moment, at that moment, we were all worried about the Iranian uh, general who had been assassinated and the outcome of that. But COVID was also starting to emerge. So, um, and here we were in Rome living the good life. So I wanted to write about what that felt like. So it's called Sunday Morning. Sunday Morning on the Parquet. Sunday Morning on Horseback. Sunday morning picking lice from her hair. Sunday morning with a rosary in pre-dieu. Sunday morning with eggs benedict hiking the trail. Sunday morning loading the llamas to flee. 
Sunday morning, taking down the bodies hanged as warnings or lining up for rice and clean water. Sunday morning in the dog park, digging someone this trench, flying home from the slopes. Sunday morning, throwing that ferry from the roof, dodging a drone. Sunday morning, building Legos for the little guy. Sunday morning, cruising garage sales for depression glass. Sunday morning, spraying down the roof, or probing for eels in the keys. Sunday morning, pulling corpses from the fence or teaching the porter how to read. Sunday morning, reviving the witness for more. Sunday morning, God's day of rest. Sunday morning, like all the rest. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So um, just to transition into that, um, so some of the pre-interview questions I thought I'll hit you with, uh, not to make our uh, structure uh, too apparent, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, what work do you think, uh, what, well, I'll, I'll start with um, what work or uh, piece of literature or piece of music or piece of theater do you think is so important for everyone to experience? Um, like what kind of, at what literary or, or you can pick a genre and then go with kind of what do you think is everyone should experience in order to, uh, you know. Well, I, I think in a funny way, um, I, I, my, I think that something like Lord of the Rings, you know, a sort of speculative uh, fiction, um, that, that cycle was very important to, uh, to me at certain stages of my life. And it, it's not at all a religious text, but I think it has some very important um, lessons even for a time like now. You know, it came out of a time like now. It came out of World War II, of course. Um, but about, you know, there are, there are forces that cannot be tolerated to survive because they're evil. Um, and, it, and, and that little people can act. I think the biggest problem we have is the complacency. Um, a lot of foreigners have always told me this. Americans are so complacent because we're able to continue and not feel the effects of our country's actions. And I, I think the, that's over now. We, we feel it. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the sort of uh, heroism of the hobbits in uh, Lord of the Rings is an example we can all live for. You know, the small person can make a difference and we need to feel that we have that we can make a difference. Yeah, I think definitely I think the lessons for me have to do with, you know, the struggle between some of the themes or some of the ideas that return to me after having read and experienced that work is, um the idea of introversion versus extroversion. So going outside in the world and seeking within because the hobbits lived, you know, what they consider, um, what they kind of termed as like homey life, homely lives, you know, mm -hmm. kind of like being at home and just, you know, kind of tending to their garden. And then the idea that they're being called upon for this epic quest. And one of them is like, he has to break that tradition of just staying at home because the times have changed and mm -hmm. go out and go on to this dangerous territory. But he brings the major armor that he brings with him, Frodo and Bilbo bring with them, is that years spent in the garden, years spent tending to their garden that we can all learn from. And when they go out 
into the um, you know go among warriors and and so-called uh, uh, you know kind of battle warriors exactly or soldiers you know with the elves and the and the um, and the and the uh, uh, dwarves and all this kind of thing they're like battle ready all the time and you have the hobbit with them who's you know tended to his own garden the whole life and in a very long time at that they're like 600 years old or something like that it's not just like they're young people you know like uh so my point is like saying how in life we can learn a lot from that we can learn a lot from how there are times that we need to kind of do self introspection we have to go inside ourselves we have to kind of weed and do the regular maintenance of ourselves but there's also times in which we're called upon to go out and protest we go out and you know, go yeah. out and go into the world and make our voices heard, amplify our voices. But if we don't go through the process of, you know, really interrogating our own internal processes first or while or during or all the time, you know, we, we won't be effective. Our voices, you know, when we go out into the world and we go out to protest, we go out to make our voice heard to the so-called establishment or the people who are, you know, out there who are making decisions. But I don't know, I, even that I kind of find problematic because I think what we have to ultimately protect is ourselves and our own mentality and our own vision of ourselves, yeah. Well, you kind of have to do both and they both yeah. feed each other. You know, exactly. the, your experiences in the world awaken your own contemplation and reflection mm. and you then feed that back into your experience of the world. Um, yeah. And be, because the last thing you want is some sort of... Um, unsettled, fragile person were rolling out in the world to take on, you know, some sort of massive battle. Um, exactly, exactly. And uh, the heroes that we have, um, you know, Maxine Waters and, and people like that, they clearly have a, a, a strong spine and they have a sense of who they are. And it's been informed by the back and forth of their own internal um, personality and their and their public persona, and that's the balance. the the the, tr the problem is when you go too extreme either way. I think we're. Uh, I know for myself, I'm very. I take. I'm very easy on myself, and I try to work with that and be more uh, assertive in being out in the world. Um, and you know, there's a huge contingent of us retirees out here now, and this is exactly where we have this choice of are we going to slip off the face of the earth or is it time for us to slip off the face of the earth i kind of feel sometimes that it is that time um or are we going to use this energy and capacity we have to engage and try to to leave the world better after all the harm we've done mm. um you know it is a second chance for for my generation in a way um, to activate and support the activists who are making for a better world but i do think we need to step back and stop being the voice of change or necessarily the thought leaders of change because we're not going to live in a world that's being created now for very long. Exactly, exactly, yeah. But we need to be supportive and share what wisdom we have, I think, is a key role, and certainly resources. We're the best-resourced retirement cadre in history, um, some of us, <laughs> not all of us, um, and there's an, I think, an obligation to support change for the future, or else uh, it will all, your your succeeding generations will not have the capacity to thrive. Mm. So now, what what would you say are the underlying philosophies? I mean, a lot of people listening to the show probably have a sense of our underlying philosophies, but I want to give you a chance to address what are the underlying philosophies that have influenced you, 
and uh, give credits or credence to that as we start to at 45, so about 10 more minutes to talk about philosophies and, uh, and systems of thought and all this kind of stuff, yeah. Well, um, lately I've been thinking a lot about Marxism. Um, yeah. You know, the theories of Marxism are actually playing out to be true. Mm. Um, nobody likes what Marxism became when it was put into action, but the theories of, uh, you know, exploitation of a working class, the, in, the internal inconsistencies of unfettered capitalism, they're playing out beautifully, just exactly as he predicted. And capitalism has not solved the problem of how to rein itself in. Um, so I would say one philosophy I find very interesting to review and to, to uh, pose questions that we're not answering right now is Marxism. Mm. Um, I, I'm also, um, on a personal level, of course, I, I uh, am a Buddhist. I've been for almost 30 years now. And... Um, I think that uh, while Buddhism can often be seen and, and used as a narcissistic sort of self-improvement channel, the actual tenets of Buddhism of compassion and wisdom and uh, undertaking this journey for the sake of all sentient beings, I think is a real core value that I try to fulfill. Um, and uh, so that's another, I don't know, this is why Buddhism and Marxism in the same breath, actually, uh, I think they can be reconciled in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, um, so those would be two of the, the tenets. And I also, I respond a great deal to Maslow's hierarchy and of human, uh, you know, you start with the human needs for food and shelter, learning and then self-actualization. And I think as a principle of how I try to spend my time and where, how I think humans should be spending their time is to move as high up in that hierarchy as possible and resolve once and for all those questions of food, shelter, those basic needs so people can really thrive at higher levels. So those are some of the things that have, I think, activated me throughout my life. Yeah, I think definitely that a lot of people tend to think of uh, you know, Buddhism and a lot of these religions is being apolitical, but they're naturally uh, aligned. If they were to align with a political um, affiliation, and many people obviously enter Buddhism and enter uh, all these different like kind of Eastern traditions with uh, kind of a political affiliation to begin with, and or some kind of political thing, some kind of political leaning. And I think definitely they're they're not naturally aligned with like capitalism and all this kind of the idea of like you know unless you really radically reinterpret that but the way in which uh we experience kind of the the um uh systems of thought uh definitely like i think that like the philosophies and the and the leanings of the progressive and marxist uh, uh ideology seems to be more more naturally aligned with kind of self-improvement because you're doing it for the sake of others so you want everyone to be pulled up and we don't want to kind of create a uh, situation in which you know i'm i'm or, or i become the the fat cat who's living off the fat land whereas everyone else is struggling over crumbs you know mm -hmm. yeah well, i think buddhism has uh, a healthy attitude toward materiality um yeah. where um 
you know, they recognize that materiality is an aspect of samsara, which is basically a massive distraction mm. and, uh, and an impediment to progress along the social path. So Buddhism in its pure form, and Buddhism historically has been twisted and misused by elite regimes and nationalist mm. states and so on, uh, like any other philosophy, but in its pure form, in terms of what it really tries to advocate, um, Buddhism does give you a framework for materialism, which is one of the problems we have in our culture right now of how we relate to material life, um, which is Buddhism is that you, you uh, renounce it. You know, you do not prioritize it. You recognize it for the challenges it is. It is not material goodness. Wealth is not a reward for your virtue. It is actually, as even Christ said, you know, it is actually an impediment to your virtue. Um, and, uh, and that's very aligned with Buddhist thinking. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, uh, let me just quickly announce a few quick things. Uh, this is the Truth to Power Show and Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Um, you know, we're looking for uh, support from the community. So the, um, let me just quickly get so yeah, so um, we air, Truth to Power show airs every um, Monday at 8 a.m. We rebroadcast at um, uh, Thursday at 9 a.m. So if you're listening uh, on your computer, free yourself up by downloading the apps on uh, iPhone or Android by going to their respective Play Stores. Um, yeah, and then I'll continue. There it is. Um, Yeah, and then also we have a quick announcement that uh, Undercover, a virtual benefit for the music industry, is going to be happening on uh, a virtual uh, benefit. It's going to happen on June 19th now. There's been a date change. So in case that you um, heard us announce it the other day, uh, I said June, June 20th, but it's actually Friday, June 19th. Um, the Undercover Concert Series returns Friday, June 19th. Performances by Ask Jesus, Ask Jesus, the Big Easy Eclectic Method, developed by the Visceral Glitch and Azim. Uh, Undercover is a virtual benefit concert series that pairs two musicians to perform original versions of each other's songs. Undercover provides an opportunity for fans to enjoy the live music, experiment experience, uh, an experimental experience from the safety and comfort of their homes while fundraising for artists. With in, whose income have been adversely affected by COVID-19 crisis via $1 uh, early ticket purchases and virtual tip jar. Presentative donations will be distributed to the Musicians Foundation as well as participating musicians. Tickets are available at Dice.fm. Dice to learn more about the concert series, visit undercover.nyc. Okay. Um, finally, um, you know, COVID-19 I know has been hurting a lot of us. But if you have the ability to give a donation, please go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate or go to um, or you can also uh, text RFB give five uh, to four, four, three, two, one, I believe four, four, three, two, one. Yeah, it only takes a moment. and You'll be able to use your digital wallet for your donation. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, you can go to Amazon.com slash smile and register Ready for Brooklyn as a nonprofit you wish to support. When you do prevent your sales, we'll go to. Percentage of your sales will go to RFB and it'll cost you nothing. 
Uh, no donation is too big or too small. Whenever you can afford, will make a huge difference. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts, and we wish all listeners health and happiness as we have this storm together. Thank you. Okay. So now we have a few more minutes. Um, so now we were talking a little bit about kind of uh, just to summarize or go over what the topics we're talking about. But, uh, you know, just uh, uh, what final thread do you think is good is on your mind now? Oh, um, well, I think that um, we need to uh, utilize this time. You know, COVID has been, for many people, it's been a tragic time. It's been an incredibly stretching time having to take care of children and uh, jobs from home. Apparently, productivity uh, working from home has been astonishing. The companies that have used it uh, have, have been measuring it and tracking it. But we need to use this opportunity to rethink what our life after this pandemic is going to be like. Um, yeah. There, there are lots of uh, uh, very, very alarming trends happening in our culture. You know, we are very, very uh, polarized. Uh, we are militarized. Uh, people on both sides of our polls feel that this is a life and death election for them. And there is a decreasing respect for the Constitution um, and for the rights of everyone in the country to even vote. And I think that this is a year that will be the test of this country's model. Can a democracy function for over 200 years? Um, 250 years. Uh, this is the year that we'll find out because uh, uh, obviously I have you know directions I'd like the election to go. But my chief concern is the fairness of the process and the civility of the process. Mm -hmm. um, if the election is being fought in the streets uh, before, during, or after the election, um, where are we going to wind up with this? So I think people need to um, take care of themselves, uh, be very mindful that the COVID is not going anywhere. There is no, there isn't even a decent palliative drug yet for this disease, even though we've been living with it now for, so, it feels like such a long time. And we just need to be very attentive and as engaged as possible. We can't, we, we cannot be complacent, um, or we, or we will never recover from the steps that we may be see take place this year it's every year is said to be critical but no never more so than this one because um you know i was talking yesterday with a, a friend of mine who was in college at berkeley in the 60s and he said um this is nothing like that you know the, the it was exciting to be at berkeley in the 60s but the violence was so far away it took years before these efforts became violent, whereas right now they become violent almost immediately. Yeah. Um, and, and violence over issues that seem non-negotiable. You know, what a man is killed and we're going to get violent over our reaction to that. We can't agree on our reaction to that. What are we? And uh, if that's the case, you know, if there can be an immediate violent backlash to people protesting in a murder, who are we as the people? Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's what I think people need to really think about. And if you don't believe that's the way to go, you have to act or else you will become a victim of this 
toxic culture. Yeah, I think definitely we all need to kind of understand that uh, this is becoming like a major pattern as well. Like the lives that are being lost, um, you know, due to police violence is becoming a little bit too, too, too familiar. And just like, and, uh, and that's, I think, the reason why we have this kind of uh, reaction that's so violent. It's just, it feels like it's a repeat of every day is becoming like a repeat, you know? Well, well, there's the reaction to the police violence, but then there's a the reaction to that reaction is what I oh, mean. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the, the people who are actively advocating for a civil war, yeah. you know, the bugaloos and the people in Hawaiian shirts and the provocateurs who yeah. are attacking uh, protesters. You know, London had a terrible problem over the weekend with right-wing anti anti-racist protesters coming after mm. protesters mm. and it took years for that to develop in the 60s yeah. and here we are already militarized over over an issue that to me is is virtually non-negotiable you know yeah. racism is intolerable police yeah. violence is intolerable it almost seems like um the the people who are attacking the protesters are, are, are not being you know targeted enough they're not being they're not that show that the government, the police are not saying, listen, we need to protect the protesters, not, you know, kind of become adverse them because these protesters are saying things that we should definitely agree with. You well, know? I think there are instances in the past where uh, right wing uh, individuals have attacked protesters and police have stood by. Exactly. Exactly. That's um, I mean, yeah. There's an infiltration of police forces with white supremacists. Mm. Um, police forces and their unions have, I think, gone rogue from civilian control in many cases. So yeah. there, there are a lot of there's institutional lot of problems which are driving the defund the police movement. Exactly. There's a lot of issues and avenues and rabbit holes we can go down. But as we start to wind out, I want to cut off in the middle. But um, yeah, I think definitely these are things that people need to investigate for themselves and need to uh, come to conclusions with an open mind and and look at these issues and, and, and examine them critically and not just, you know, swallow whole the hook, lining and sinker that's being delivered, you know? Mm -hmm. Exactly. The trick exactly. is who, how do you examine critically yeah. in a media environment that is so polluted? Yeah, that, exactly. That's right. one of the dangers. And I hope that the library will continue to be, uh, uh, you know, a warrior in this in this fight against a kind of misinformation. So I hope that the library's continuing mission will bring it into territory where they'll be the, the generals on helping people uh, digest and understand information as it comes out. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so, too. Thank Keep you. up your good work, BJ. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you. This is the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, thank you so, so much for listening and uh, for being here, Bruce. Um, and we'll see you again next week. Uh, we'll be doing a World Unity Week uh, special. So definitely tune in next week, Monday at 8 a.m. Thank you.